Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your hosts, Ash Darrow. Uh, unfortunately, uh, John, aka the Liquid Guy, has been called away to do psychic combat from with ghouls from the nether region, as happens to the hosts of the show on occasion. So it is just me today, but I am not alone. I am joined by Michael Grasso and Kelly Roberts, uh, two of the authors behind We Are the Mutants. Uh, how is it going? Hey, uh, Ash, thanks for having us on. Yeah, oh, nice, yeah, to, no nice to meet you, Ash. Thanks so much. This is Mike, by the way. I should identify myself for the. <laughs> I am. I am. There. I am Kelly, not a ghoul from the from the Nether region. <laughs> <laughs> yet, yet, yet. <laughs> All in due time. <laughs> right. So, um, if you two, uh, uh, I guess, I guess, Mike, you can go first if you wouldn't mind letting our audience know who you are, a little bit about you, and uh, you know, plug anything you'd like where we can find you online, websites, upcoming works, anything exciting like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't really tell the story of myself in this book without you know <laughs> telling telling the story with Kelly because uh, oh, yeah. Kelly, Kelly, myself, and Richard McKenna, who's the other author of We Are the Mutants, came together. Gosh, what is it now? Six and a half years ago now, Kelly, to put together. Lord. Uh, a website looking very critically at the media of our childhoods and the sort of Cold War era. Uh, we Are the Mutants debuted back in 2016, and uh, we've been writing steadily ever since. And this book is sort of the culmination of a lot of our thought, especially on film, obviously, but also on history, culture, politics of that era. And um, uh, in my day job, I, I work in archives and museums. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just been a great journey with uh, these two guys and uh, you know, here's to six plus more years of doing the same. Yeah, I think the you know at this point the the only thing we have to plug is is the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we sort of laid off on the the, the site a while. We you know we've got some upcoming articles, so mm -hmm. um, definitely check out the site wearethemutants.com. Um, yeah, the book uh, the book came out October 2022. Um, it's doing quite well. We're all we're all super proud of it. Yeah, I, I and we've been trying to make the timing for this interview work since about October of 2020. That's right. <laughs> we've got we've got five different time zones. I think we've been we've been trying to. <laughs> the the good thing about releasing a book around the holidays is that people buy it for the holidays. The bad thing is when you're trying to do promotion, everybody's away for the holidays. So <laughs> we we finally managed to come in and uh, talk to y'all. Yeah, long, long time listeners of our show will know our constant battle with time zones and five <laughs> time zones is a lot even for us. <laughs> that is some impressive juggling. Um, so I guess we can dig into We Are the Mutants. I absolutely loved this book. This is so much of what we try and accomplish here on Horror Vanguard is to talk about horror cinema in, in political contexts, to return the history to the cinema, to, to really broaden the scope of kind of film discussion and analysis. And this book just it just front to back blew me away. My my copy is essentially yellow with highlights at this point. Wow, thank you. Uh, That's so, a huge so, compliment. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, a I'm not a highlighter myself, but man, <laughs> I, I that that shows you're doing the work. <laughs> I, I am absolutely a, a highlighter and right in the margins kind of guy. Uh... <laughs> Which I know there'll be hot takes about that most assuredly. <laughs> So how did how did you two go about starting this project? Because this is, I, I guess, in terms of popular film criticism, this kind of, kind of what you're doing here and what we do on the show is a little unique. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, again, like, you know, long-term listeners to the show will know my, my deep and sincere loathing for Funko Pops and what they represent mm. in culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly good shorthand. We, we will share that right. with you. <laughs> But the kind of funkified discourse that we get for cinema is is largely an extension of the marketing apparatus for Disney and Marvel and Warner. Um, this this is not that. This is something completely distinct. How did you two go about starting this project and starting the work that ultimately becomes this book? Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, we've been we've been talking about doing a book for 
for a while. And actually, the original pitch was sort of a series of essays, um, you know, by different con contributors about mm -hmm. different kinds of media, not just movies, but, you know, subcultures and music. And that sounded a little too academic um, to the publisher. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, I think that's absolutely correct. So we just turned around and thought, you know, let's let's talk about movies. We're all really passionate and pretty obsessive about um, film, especially films of, of this era. And, you know, the thought occurred to me to, to you know, that each chapter would, um, would contain two films, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, don't seem to go together initially, but, um, do end up intersecting in, in you know, meaningful ways. And, you know, originally we were, we were, we, the hardest part was whittling down the films that we wanted to talk about because we each wanted oh, to talk yeah. about, you know, like 20 films. So the initial list was just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so get, you know, getting the films down to, you know, to the total that we have was, was pretty difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Mike, you talk, you can talk a little bit more about it, but I, the selections we ended up with, I think, are pretty, pretty powerful. And it's a, you yeah, know, it's a variety. I, it's not, you know, we sort of covered all the bases in terms of kinds of films. I think. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you know a few things on sort of you know narrowing this down into a book about film mm -hmm. and then a book about pairs of films. I think that really you know worked to our advantage to keep us kind of focused, obviously. Um, and yeah, the idea is that we wanted to, we really did want to go deep into genre film, and so we have mm -hmm. a lot of representation from horror, from science fiction, from action, uh, a little bit of documentary as well, and mockumentary in the case of Punishment Park. Um, what we really wanted to do was just kind of like, and again, a lot of these films were huge mainstream successes. You know, The Exorcist was a blockbuster, you know. Uh, yeah. Lethal you know, Weapon Alien was, was huge. Lethal yeah. Weapon, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we represented the folks who were doing stuff on the margins as well, because, you know, in Kelly's, you know, masterful introduction to the book, uh, we talk a lot about the interplay of commerce and, uh, you know, popularity versus an artistic statement that was happening, well, it's happened all throughout Hollywood history, but especially mm -hmm. in this era. We did want to kind of tilt at some windmills, you know, we wanted to kind of, you know, put some sacred cows up on the altar and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, make sure that, you know, we, we kind of represented the, you know, th this is the era that everybody says, oh, it changed Hollywood forever for the better is the sort of unspoken, you know, ending to that yeah. phrase. Oh, but yeah. but I, th I think, you know, our honest sort of appraisal of these films shows that, you know, a lot of these people weren't doing anything too terribly new and they, a lot of them did get recuperated back into the Hollywood machine when it was all said and done. Um, and again, that's all down to Kelly's, you know, amazing uh, intro to the book where we look at the counterculture of the sixties. We look at, you know, the, the, the political and social revolutions that were happening at the time and how they express themselves on the screen. You know, mm -hmm. there's that very, very sort of, you know, tired uh, analysis that, you know, Hollywood went from sort of like, you know, hello Dolly to Bonnie and Clyde in a single year. And like, yeah. you know, that changed, you know, the way, you know, young people consumed at the movies. But again, like this generation, this boomer and late silent generation that made these films, I mean, you know, they grew up, you know, if they weren't at the cinema, they were watching movies on TV in the fifties, you know, like they, yeah. they were suffused in film from an early age. And again, not just the domestic stuff, but all the stuff that was coming out of Europe and Asia at the time. So, um, you know, to us, like to, to really look at this, you know, 20 years or so of Hollywood history, it was important for us to look at both the conventional wisdom and go outside that a little bit as well. Yeah. I love that approach. I, I really enjoy it. a lot of these, uh, movie pairings right these double features that you put together for each section of the book um a, a lot of like wild in the streets and punishment park when i when i saw those two paired together i was like oh that makes perfect sense that really works <laughs> rosemary's baby and bloody mama uh, <laughs> the, the exorcist and manson and then there was, a, there was a third one where i was just like um it was alien and sorcerer uh, uh, when, I, when i saw those paired together i was like oh i'm gonna love this book so much <laughs> Well, that's that's incredibly kind, Ash. I mean, the, you know, again, like they're not these pairings aren't completely off base. Like a lot of them have very, very clear thematic relations. But, you know, again, like when when Richard, our co-author, came to us with the idea of doing um, Manhunter with Dragon Slayer, 
I was so angry because it was so perfect of a pairing. And I was just like, how dare you? And I was just like, you know, originally I had planned to do a, a, a chapter on uh, Back to the Future in Blue Velvet. I found out that a bunch oh of people God, had made that comparison already online. So I was like, damn, another one I couldn't get. But, um, <laughs> you know, the idea here is that, you know, people can attack the same sorts of themes from very, very different directions. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, again, Punishment Park and Wild in the Streets are both, they're both, you know, broadly satires, but, mm-hmm. you know, one is one that we can giggle and guffaw at now. And one like still hits like it did back in 1971, you know, right. like it's still, it still just makes you just sort of like, you know, just feel this incredible generational rage that's happening. And when you look at sort of the way that, that Hollywood, you know, promoted wild in the streets and punishment park became, you know, a campus favorite, you know, it just goes to show you that like, again, the messages that were coming through these films, some of them were made for consumption and some of them were made for actual, you know, sort of like thought and analysis and serious intergenerational, you know, dialogue. Hell yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is such a good way to go about looking at this type of analysis too. Like I love taking a heterodox approach to film analysis and just pairing weird things together. Cause you can go so much deeper. When there's you, so many, when you yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's please, so many angles on. that you can find, right? I mean, there's, Oh yeah. There's, that's why, that's why just the pairings that, again, the pairings that we sort of, wanted to do i mean we could we could do another book just on the basis of what we couldn't you know what we couldn't cover in this first one um there's just so many things to talk about i'm still working on a couple of the essays it didn't make sense, <laughs> quite honestly um but you know again we'll, we'll keep them in our back pocket maybe there'll be right. an opportunity to get them out there at some point i am so excited to see what else what else comes out in this vein <laughs> Uh, one one of the ones that really stood out to me, and that that was I, I had that same reaction where I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is I'm mad at how perfect this is." Was the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Harlan County USA combination? Oh, thank you. That, uh, that is such a natural connection. I you know I keep thinking that there's got to be an essay out there that talks about both of those films, and I just haven't seen it because mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I, it just clicked, and originally, you know. I, I wanted Mike to write it. Um, and Mike said, no, you write it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did. And, and yeah, I, you know, I, I really like that one as well. I think, um, you know, this idea in the one film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that, um, you know, capitalism is sort of reduced this working class family to cannibals. Um, it, it has been talked about a lot, obviously. But what I what I sort of like is that Harlan County, USA, you know, nobody there in that coal town has the privilege of counterculture, of being a part of the counterculture, right? I mean, you have to have you have to sort of be entitled to some extent um, to go to the film houses and see movies and to consume drugs and to do you know to do all that stuff. But these folks in Harlan County, you know, they don't even have um, clean water uh mm-hmm. and the idea that you know right when um you know one of their own gets gets killed by these gun thugs you know right at the point where you think they're going to turn into like the sawyers and just consume everything with fire they like choose you know they choose a contract instead um you mm-hmm. know they've got their own kids and and they want to make it right for uh, for, for their own families and for the sake of solidarity. So I thought it was just an interesting, you know, interesting politically and socially. Um, both films are about the energy crisis, obviously. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and sort of what, who, you know, who we're going to sacrifice to get all this energy that we need. Um, yeah. You know, uh, electric, you know, every time they go down into the, the, the coal mine almost, you know, somebody dies and that's, you know, that's for electricity that's, um, that everybody uses. Um, so yeah, I thought it was interesting if incredibly depressing to write, uh, it was probably the hardest one to write for me just because I, mm-hmm. you know, watching both of those films sort of back and forth over and over again, um, is incredibly shocking and, uh, depressing just because not, you know, not much has changed, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, these, these, um, 
these things still exist. This this attitude that um, we can just sacrifice everyone for for money. It's it's still the reigning ideology of, of this country, unfortunately. Absolutely. Sorry to drag everybody down. I mean, <laughs> oh, it, it it happens here. Don't worry. <laughs> Especially Harlan Harlan County, USA, is such a hard watch too. Oh yeah, we rewatched it last year, and then, like that movie never gets easier to view. Um, it's I, up there with the act of killing for me for like some of the most hard hitting documentary work. Yeah, and I you know I I always um, talk about this, but it's it's hard for me to believe you know Barbara Koppel who directed it was sort of you know. In, in her 20s when she when she did it mm-hmm. and she just you know from new york she just came down from new york and started sleeping on the floor of these you know these the coal miner families um you know houses they weren't even houses really they're you know sort of shanties yeah. um and for her to sort of stick it out uh, you know she had no money she had to beg for money to get the thing made it's a miracle it even showed in the first place um I guess that's another similarity between the two films too. both shot on a shoestring budget yeah, and yeah. it shows through the sort of quality of the film and everything. But like, yeah, like the, the kind of, you know, desperate need to make the movie uh, beats through both of those films for sure. Yeah. Everybody talks about, you know, the, the difficulty of the shoot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, it's like a hundred plus degrees and they're all yeah. suffocating inside these, <laughs> inside <laughs> yeah. these small sets. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're right, Mike. I mean, even that similarity sort of comes through. Yeah, we did um, we did a two part episode on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation movie. Oh god! Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a wild ride. Um, but one one of the things that I really appreciate about the there's a line in here that 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 you wrote that I love, and that's at least the Sawyers eat what they butcher, and. <laughs> there's a there's a certain there's a weird sympathy or maybe empathy is the better word for it that i have with with the sawyer family because so, something had to make them that way right mm. nobody nobody wakes up one day in the morning and they're like oh you know i'm gonna quit my job in middle management and become like the face stealer of this town you know <laughs> like it has, it, it's a it's a process that is done to you in time and I think this this section of the book, and I mean, the book as a whole, to be honest, really kind of digs through those historical and societal underpinnings that, you know, I guess, sink people down into becoming a family of incestuous face doing cannibals. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the whole movie is shot through with, you know, process, right? The process of mm-hmm. how we, you know, how we make meat, how we butcher animals to make meat right i mean it's the same process that happened to the sawyers right i mean they were in a sense butchered by you know whoever owned um whoever whoever owned their business um so yeah that insane same in harlan county usa right it's this generational process this generational struggle that never that never seems to end um it's just constant degradation of the, the working class And so uh, I think it was it was Mike Wright who wrote the um, "Every Girl Should Have a Daddy," The Exorcist and Manson. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen seventy three for right. me is like is like the the signal year of the nineteen seventies. And when I realized that not only had both these very very differently budgeted and marketed films come out bookending that year, but mm-hmm. actually that you know they they were both you know nominated for awards. Like that, that kind of, again, like the, the, the first sort of inkling of why I wanted to pair those films was I, I said to myself, I've watched that Manson documentary um, from 73, you know, half dozen times maybe because it's just such a fascinating document. Um, yeah. Just pure, pure exploitation. But, you know, again, like we, we look at the way The Exorcist was marketed back when it came out at the end of 73 and how, you know, the, the marketing was all about go to this movie. It is a sensation. You will faint. You will throw up. You will want to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, which movie is the exploitation movie here? Is it the, <laughs> yeah. you know, shoestring budget, quote unquote, documentary that, you know, has, you know, the, these documentary filmmakers going to the the family's, you know, current abode in, in 72 and 73 and filming them and making them look like these idyllic hippies? Or is it the, 
you know, the big budget motion picture made by the guy who did the French connection, who's, you know, got this, you know, what was she 13 years old? Um, Linda Blair, when she made yeah, or something yeah. like that, like, you know, which one is the exploitation flick here, you know? And then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. If Manson, you know, is sort of like the horror film, then maybe the exorcist is the documentary, you know, maybe, maybe they're mm-hmm. both each other in some weird way. And that's when I started thinking about, you know, what is happening to the nuclear family in America at this time. And not even at this time, but like six or seven years ago when, you know, you know, the war is at its height and, you know, campuses are just roiling with, you know, with, um, you know, just just pure rebellion. And the way it all settled into the suburbs by 1973 was this fear that somebody's going to take our daughters away. And again, like, unfortunately, very, very relevant in this day and age as well. Like, Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of mentality of these you know, white middle-class families thinking that someone's coming to snatch their kids, you know, to take them, to turn them into demons, to turn mm-hmm. them into killers, you know, mm-hmm. to turn them into something other than what they want to make them. And to me, that's what really just linked up the two of these movies is it's all about daughters and it's all about controlling yeah. them. And um, to me, you know, watching, I mean, I've seen the Exorcist again, zillions of times mm-hmm. watching it for the book all I cared about was that first third of the movie where you see Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair sort of just like dealing with the fact that they're a mother daughter dyad and her father is gone. and The parents are separated. And like, you know, this family has immense privilege, you know, Ellen Burstyn's character is a, is a movie star, you know, they're living in this beautiful rented house in Georgetown and in Washington DC. And like they have everything they'd ever want, but again, Friedkin and Blatty, you know, (laughs) what are they missing? They're missing a dad Mm there. And again, it's, it, it, it's the whole idea that the last half of this movie is about, you know, two priests trying to, you know, find a reason to go on and looking for that meaning in this, you know, this innocent that's been corrupted. Um, you know, the Manson documentary, again, I, I, I recommend it, but it's, it's, it is hard watch because, you know, again, like, you know, you're talking, you can see, you know, again, they, they let the, the Manson family speak their own mind and, you know, they've obviously been brainwashed, you know, they've obviously mm-hmm. been, turned into again turned into something that they weren't but the 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 way that they talk to the camera even after charlie is gone to prison they have a political point to make which is that you know tv made us this way our parents Mm -hmm. made us this way america made us this way and you know again that may be that may be bull it may be you know completely (laughs) you know them sort of self-aggrandizing themselves they put it on the, they those two documentary filmmakers put it on the screen for that reason because it was very provocative and it said something that was abroad in the culture at the time i yeah i i just i, I loved that pairing and i i hadn't seen the uh manson documentary until i read this book and then i obviously that's had to cool. go watch it that's great and what, what did is... you think I'm, I'm really curious uh, fascinating <laughs> just just so so there's um like like obviously i i am decades down the road from not only the historical events but the documentary itself and and kind of manson is a, like a stock media figure at this point sure like yeah. like mansonite cult killers there there are you know dc comics specials with like a a manson style killer who has supernatural powers and stuff like that like it's yeah. it's tropic but to mm-hmm. to go back to those original like the actual people the text that moment it is so much more jarring and you get you get like just just comparing that with the exorcist too i think is such a such a powerful combination right these i, I guess like watershed culturally destructive moments yeah. And I think that, again, you can't sort of underestimate in that, again, period between like 69 and, and 73, 74, maybe when, you know, Squeaky Fromm takes a shot at, you know, uh, President Ford. Ford. Yeah, that's really mm-hmm. that's those are really the two sort of like moments that sort of bracket the, you know, I'm afraid of crazy hippies coming into my house and killing. me, <laughs> And, you know, like, I, but again, like, you know, why did that narrative become so popular in media? after the Cielo drive murders in 69, like yep. it served a purpose. And I, I talk a little bit about this in um, the wild in the streets punishment park chapter, but like, you know, it's also in the O'Neill book chaos about the Manson murders. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 that trope that you're talking about, it served a purpose. It got middle Americans to turn on the counterculture, well, right. you know, it, yep. it's, um, 
this documentary again, like paints them as idyllic hippies when it's not painting them as, you know, satanic murderers. Like mm. it, they're, they're able to play both sides of it because, you know, again, like, you know, they, they start off the movie with, you know, Bugliosi in, in his courtroom with his, you know, square suit, just you know, telling you that this is one of the worst crimes in the annals of history and yeah. everything. And like, so, you know, there's, they're working from a, you know, even back in their seventies, true crime was a thing, you know, people yeah. loved it. People loved, you know, you know, hard boiled detective novels and, you know, true stories of, you know, and again, we also have to remember, this is the, this is the point when the American serial killer is beginning to, you know, raise his, his head in, in pop culture and in, in the news and sort of, you know, the seventies were a very, very paranoid time for a lot of those reasons. And again, it serves a purpose. It serves a societal purpose. And Mike was, was Helter Skelter, was it published before or after Manson? Um, it would have been know? published before. Yeah. So Cause he, that was he, a huge Bugliosi, yeah, Bugliosi, you know, <laughs> he, he cashed in. He um, certainly did. As soon as he <clears throat> possibly could. And again, if you read the O'Neill chaos book, um, you know, he just comes off as, you know, again, just very, very, very cynically sort of, you know, you know, the, the, you know, he was abusive to his spouse and, you know, again, was kind mm -hmm. of known as somebody who would, you know, either make up or hide evidence, depending on how it served his case. There's a lot of a lot of hinky stuff happening with the Manson murders, especially when it comes to law enforcement and the CIA and sort of like what was going on in Southern California and the entertainment industry at the time. It's all, you know, it's all part of the big, same big stew. But again, like, you know, I'm so glad you watched the documentary, Ash, because again, like if, if one thing can come out of this book, if people go and watch that thing and understand how whacked out it is, it was just, <laughs> I'll be very, very happy if I hear more people say that. So. Yeah. And there was a lot of money to be made in painting <laughs> hippies as psychotic killers. A lot of money. Well, there's Wild in the Streets for you right there, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. that's, that's exactly the same thing. I mean, that was... People got the, the 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 sort of like middle aged folks who went to go see that movie got a real thrill from it, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that <laughs> that was you know oh it's so funny. But then you read what they're saying in the um, the counterculture magazines, and I I yeah you know, I try to use as many primary sources from the periods of these movies as possible because that to me seeing what film critics, mm -hmm. academics, or popular critics were saying at the time is always super important. Absolutely, and, yeah. you know the you know Renata Adler is saying you know this is this this movie says something about society. And the kids who are writing for like the LA, you know, free press are like, this thing just proves to you that they'll make money off us any way they can. Mm -hmm. And if it means making us look like monsters who are going to throw all the old people into, you know, concentration you know, LSD concentration camps. camps. Yeah. Like so much <laughs> the better. And, 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 and they were right. Those kids, those, those, you know, 20 year old film critics were right. Like that again, it served a purpose. It, and, um, that's why punishment park, you know, pairing that with wild in the streets was so important to me because mm -hmm. punishment park is what was actually going on in draft boards, yep. courtrooms on college campuses where kids were getting shot, yep. you know, like that's what was actually happening. And all Peter Watkins did was just turn it up just a tiny bit and make it a little bit more sort of, you know, just a few minutes into the future, mm -hmm. uh, what might happen if this keeps going on. And of course we all know what Nixon and the rest of his dirty tricks people were doing at this time. It wasn't just shooting kids on college campuses. It was infiltrating, you know, uh, you know, black activist organizations mm -hmm. and, you know, co-intel yep. Co pro. And like, you know, people knew this stuff was going on. It bubbled under the surface and it came out in these movies. Absolutely. And, and revisiting that historic context, I think, is so important. It often feels like we live in an unprecedented historical moment that had no, you know, <laughs> some precedents, I guess. But but by touching back with these historical moments and like you, the, things might be louder now, they might be more frequent, the, the accessibility of video media might make them more readily apparent, but the, the seeds were planted decades and decades and decades ago. And it's yeah. it's so important to, to see that. And one of the things in here, so I, I really like the flipping the script on what, you know, between Manson and the Exorcist, what's documentary, what's exploitation. Uh, there's there's another uh, section of this that does that with a TV show that I'm like morbidly fascinated with, and that's PBS's An American Family. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, from I, I think right before 70, the Exorcist. Yeah, seventy two. It was mm -hmm. it, it was on PBS, and I think that's kind of important because you know before we were sort of subsumed in what you know we call now reality TV yeah. or half called in the last since you know twenty twenty five years or so. Like the idea of being a fly on the wall with an actual family 
you know, probably seemed a little, again, seemed exploitative, you know, and Mm -hmm. this, an American family documentary showed the disintegration of a family in the same way it was happening in novels. And, you know, again, like people knew people who were getting divorced and the the eldest son, Lance comes out as gay. And like, again, 72, like that's, you know, this is a time when you couldn't say, even say things like that on television. And I think the, the fact that it was on PBS lent it a lot of, um, uh cultural esteem because again like it, it wouldn't be seen as exploitative it would be seen as yeah you know a serious look at social issues of pbs yeah. exactly yeah but again like it put the american family it's, it's impossible to say anything about the show without saying the title of the show but like <laughs> it, put, it put the american family's dirty laundry on display in a way you know again like we're talking we're coming out of the 50s and 60s when sitcoms were all about you know like maybe maybe your kid would break a vase in a house or maybe they would do something kind of, you know, naughty, but by the end of the 22 minutes, everybody would be reconciled and everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, again, like to take it to that extra extreme in something like the exorcist where the, the, the split up nuclear family isn't just split up because of, you know, whatever economic and social pressures, but something actually spiritual that can be fought. Mm-hmm. Um, that's reactionary. I mean, that's very clearly reactionary. And I, I love William Friedkin. And I, I think, you know, uh, Blatty is, is kind of like this weirdly very, very interesting dude. But like, yeah, I mean, this, th- that film is, is really just about like, how can we stop this from happening anymore? And, yeah. um, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, to my mind, you know, looking at that through the present day lens is sort of like, it's the same anxiety that that's uh, that that we're dealing with today. Like I said earlier. Well, the point you make in the in the piece, Mike, is that you know she becomes a demon because she doesn't have a dad, right? Yeah. They're not strong mm-hmm. enough without the dad. If the dad had been there, maybe the dad would have prevented her from playing with the Ouija board. But the mom was mm-hmm. weak and let her mm-hmm. play with the Ouija board. The mom was working. She yeah, was out uh, of course. Living, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> And again, that's the thing that's happening right now is women are entering the workforce in Mm -hmm. record numbers. And I talk a little bit about how divorce laws, you know, evolved. And, you know, again, if you've, if you've grown up in the, you know, if if you're like me and Kelly and you're a Gen X or, you you know, if you're not a child of divorce, you know, plenty of them, but like Mm -hmm. the other thing that we're children of is children of moms who went to work and like weren't homemakers, you know, and that, you know, that changed, you know, sort of. Uh, not just women's professional prospects for the better, but like, yeah, put men on the back foot, like divorce laws. Like, how are you going to make sure that they're just when mm-hmm. now a judge can say, well, why don't you just go out and work? You know, like yeah. it, it changed the way sort of like people expected a um, uh, a family that was splitting up to survive uh, materially and financially. And I talk a little bit about that in, in, the, in that chapter as well. And, you know, again, people, people, people were at a loss. They didn't know what to do. Uh, the confusion was so great and so existential that um, movies like The Exorcist came out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like with with an American Family too. There's this kind of you know like there there is there is that weird shift that's happening in Hollywood. You know, over over the '60s and into the early '70s, where the American Family stops being this this quaint leave it to beaver everything is mostly placid to to being the site of unrelenting and unspeakable horror mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah uh so so we're about halfway done with the hour now um and i i can't let things go any further without talking about we've come this far we must go on alien and sorcerer <laughs> It's just, yeah. it's just, little, it's just think, th- thinking about those two together is, is just, that's well, wild. They're bo- well, they're both men on a mission. Well, you know, they're both men on a mission films. I mean, I guess I can say that because again, like the, the prototype here is sort of, you know, a bunch of, bunch of people going to the jungle, you know, and trying to mm-hmm. retrieve something, you know, a MacGuffin of, of great power and, and a totem of, 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 um, you know, great and sort of, you know, uh, evil power. And they come out changed by the experience and, um, we talked about Sorcerer, the three of us from Mutants on a podcast we did a couple of years ago. And uh, I mean, I, I I just find it one of the more, again, it's Friedkin again. I, I don't have a Friedkin thing. I just happened to have two of his movies that I wrote. <laughs> but like, but um, the thing about Sorcerer that, that, that makes it kind of, to me, a better movie than The Exorcist is that 
it is a little more conscious of what's caused these men to be chased to the end of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, each of them was trying, well, you know, we have, we have a Palestinian freedom fighter who is, you know, uh, you know, part of an operation that goes bad and uh, his comrades get caught or killed. He flees to the South American town. We've got Roy Scheider's, um, you know, petty gangster who, you know, flees his situation. We've got, you know, this French banker who comes from very humble origins, but was, you know, ripping off the bank. Like all these people are kind of being chased by these systems that, you know, don't necessarily care about them as these sort of, you know, insect like subjects of global capitalism. So to me, sorcerer and alien are about the same thing, even though alien takes place in the future. They're about the fact that even if you go to the ends of the earth, you cannot escape capitalism. And (laughs) they take the form of the, let's go to the fringes of the, 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 the civilized world or galaxy and find something to bring back for the company. Right. Mm-hmm. sorcerer it's explosives to cap off an oil well that's you know spewing forth wasting all this energy and an alien it's a secret weapon that's going to be brought back for the benefit of the company and presumably in fighting more wars right so you have these two very very parallel missions and in the course of the missions you know people are mutilated and <laughs> you know terrorized and and, uh, you know, put into immense physical danger. And so to me, they, they seemed like peas in a pod, you know. And again, they both come out at the end of the 70s when movies like, I think I mentioned them both at the introduction, Rollerball and Network have come out mm-hmm. saying that you can't escape this global network of interlocked companies that are constantly, you know, basically controlling the way you live, move and, and are able to survive, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like the, the thinking about sort of the fact that Freed can put up the, uh, put up the, the management board of Gulf and Western to, as a photo <laughs> in the shack down in this village to represent the men who are in control of the oil, fictional oil company in the film. To me, that tells me that, that Freakin knew what he was doing with this, with this film in terms of making a statement about how we can't escape these, the clutches of these companies, no matter where we go. And I brought in the element of the cargo cult because, you know, again, sort of the idea of the cargo cult was that when world war two happened, you know, uh, American soldiers were Island hopping in the Pacific, uh, going to these, a lot of these islands that really hadn't had much contact with quote unquote civilization. And they would make up these rituals to bring the cargo back. Now it ends up that these stories were very much exaggerated in a lot of cases and were, more the Western world flattering itself with how awesome it was than actually a truly, you know, sort of like uh, deep anthropological movement. But it's it's very much the same thing here where you're dealing with, you know, uh, people at the edges of, of civilization who are having to sort of retrieve cargo, basically. <laughs> and I, I tie in the ancient aliens, sort of the idea of the chariots of the gods in the yeah. 70s was also big because of the fact that you know, how, how could these ancient civilizations possibly have built these incredible astronomical machines and, you know, uh, huge land formations and, and buildings? Well, it had to have been aliens that helped them. Another sort of cargo, pure cargo cult kind of thing. And so that was on everybody's mind. And again, I think the reason why it was on everybody's mind in the 70s was because suddenly there was nowhere else to go on the planet to conquer and 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 colonize, you know, sort of the, the decolonization movement was happening the Western world is now having to deal with former subjects like Saudi Arabia and, you know, other countries in the Middle East, not as subjects, but as peers, mm-hmm. energy, cri- dual energy crises at both ends of the, of the decade. Uh, to me, it all kind of fell together into like, oh, yeah, both these movies are about the, you know, fact that there's nowhere else to conquer now, you know, and what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's there's a section in here where you compare uh, the dynamite and sorcerer with the alien eggs in Alien, <laughs> and that like that that was a huge eye opening moment when for for me because it just it just kind of dawned on me when I was reading that uh, section of that essay that there are so many horror movies uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead the stuff um, just two off the top of my head but there were so uh, many uh, horror yes. movies that yeah, are just like that they're about. Co- companies not giving workers the resources they need to manage the cargo that they have to haul, like cargo mm-hmm. as a vehicle for horror. Um, there's a bit of that in um, the original Invasion of the Bystanders, right at the end, right? There's like a mm-hmm. truck full of pods. Yeah, like, and I and I think that the, they they look at the dynamite 
and the egg with the same kind of like awe at its danger, right? Like, like the, the the dynamite. The reason why it has to be transported over land is because, you know, if they moved it with a helicopter, it would it would blow, blow up. up. Like they have to be completely like, yeah, they have to be completely gentle with it. And again, like an alien, you know, I think a lot of people watch Alien now and they go, why didn't they quarantine? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? But if you watch again, if you watch for the signs where you know, Ash, the agent of the, not you, Ash, the other Ash. <laughs> <laughs> I, I the deny my of... culpability in the events. I'm I have talked yeah, about Well, you know what? You better show me that you're not full of milk right now. That's what I need to know if you're an Android or not. But like, again, not, not like to, not to interject, subtle things that, that. Oh, I was, I was, I was going to say not, not to interject, but my last name is Darrow and the Darrow chemical company causes the problem in uh, return of the living dead. Oh my god! So, oh no. I'm just wall to wall culpable for everything bad that happens in a horror movie. But the next time you watch Alien, watch Ian Holm because he, his performance is just like in the first half of the movie before you know something sinister yeah. is going on. Every time the camera's on him, he's doing something shifty. He's 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 just always there observing. And again, like what is that? But the omnipresent surveillance that people were starting to come under under capitalism in the late '70s. You know what I mean? Like it was no longer a case that you could, you know, <laughs> take off from work early or something like that. Like they're going to put something on your truck to make sure that you're doing the right miles. And they're going to, you know, mm-hmm. again, so like, this is, this is all, all part of the same stuff, but like, yeah, to me, like that chapter was a lot of fun because it just seemed like there was a lot in the culture at the time. Again, again, in, in major motion pictures put out by major studios that t- took a, took a, a look at, I guess what we would call globalization these days and realized where it was headed. And I, I, again, like if you, you know, the, the perfect sort of, I guess, you know, appetizer or dessert to that pairing of movies of Alien and Sorcerer, just watch the Ned Beatty uh, monologue from Network where yeah. he talks about how the yeah. world is just an interlocking set of corporations. And that to me is kind of where those two movies left me when I watched them back to back for this book. Excellent. Yeah, that was just a, just a fantastic essay looking at looking at those two films. And I just, it just got me thinking about cargo and trucks for the rest of forever. I think. <laughs> um, well, I think, uh, Kelly, you mentioned um, that Sylvester Stallone movie where he plays a Jimmy Hoffa type in uh, the Harlan County uh, chapter, I think, mm-hmm. because there were a lot of labor movies in the late 70s. Yeah, Blue Collar was another big one, yep, right? Blue Collar, yep. yep. There's so, so, like a recurring theme throughout, I think, many, many of these essays is is kind of cultural backlash against youth culture against counterculture and the uh you know like like the the adult generation of the time uh kind of expressing we we often look at like like horror cinema or or cinema that participates in horror in certain ways like like almost all of these movies do as as being expressions of anxiety but i think a lot of the time the anxiety that's being expressed is is the anxiety of I guess like oppressive forces, right? And the the uh, death wish and escape from New York, like like death wish for me is is one of like the de- defining movies of like oh those damn kids are are they're they're out of control and and it's oh, so so good. But I loved I loved that um, a little human compassion essay. Yeah, you know, death wish. I think is I think I call it in the the essay like ingeniously manipulative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, everyone, this is when, you know, vigilantes are becoming popular in the culture. You know, Dirty Harry obviously is the yep. is the first big one. And I would note that in Dirty Harry, the villain, the psychotic assassin is a hippie, um, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that goes back to a theme we were talking about before, right? Demonizing the, the counterculture. But in Death Wish, it's more like demonizing, um, you know, the underclass, right? The poor. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's who Charles Bronson ends up, you know, whacking. Um, And he starts off as a liberal, of course, and he's concerned about uh, poor people and thinks we should do more for them until, you know, until his uh, wife and daughter are assaulted, uh, wife is murdered. This is... You know, long line of '80s movies follow this course. Death Wish itself had four yep. sequels, um, and of course, Death Wish Three is one of the greatest bad movies of of all time. <laughs> this is when Charles Bronson. I think it's when he gets the rocket launcher, Mike, or is yeah. that? Yeah. Or, no, yeah, I mean, yeah. The fact, that tur- the fact that it turns into a cartoon in the '80s says everything you need to know about the politics underneath this, which is that 
even at some point they couldn't take it seriously and they made it into an entertaining <laughs> popcorn flick. Yeah. But again, that, what that tells me is that like, oh, it's fun to, like you say, take pot shots at, you know, the, the, the thugs, the punks, uh-huh. the creeps, you know, mm-hmm. in the street and, and, you know, Canon films turned it into a franchise. Yep. Um, the original movie at least has something to say, um, you know, and, <laughs> and the idea that 10 years later, it really just has become like an arcade game or a cartoon is, you know, again, it's almost poignant in a way because you're like, oh, well, there's not even any politics here anymore. It's just mindless violence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, Death Wish is, it's, you know, the, the NYT, NYPD, you know, they're all dirty, which at the time yeah. was basically mm-hmm. what was happening, especially if you look at Serpico and some of these other films. And so, you know, if you want to do the right thing and, you know, you've got to go back to the Wild West and you've got to become the cowboy and you've got to pick up a gun and you've got to clean up the mean streets, right? Um, yeah. Taxi Driver came out after yeah. Death Wish, right? I mean, and it's very sort of similar um, in its themes, you know, clean the, the what, what is his line, Bickle's line? The scum off the streets, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's, that's what we're talking about with all these movies. Right. And, uh, the sixties are gone. Um, you know, the, the economic boom, um, that, that Americans had post-World War II, um, consumed by the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. Um, so the veterans came home and, and inherited sort of broken, um, infrastructure, inner cities are decimated by drugs, um, you know, the manufacturing sector is, is gone, you know, the rust belt. Um, so, so yeah, if, if the cops aren't going to protect you, you know, you got to turn to to Chuck Bronson. Um, and the interesting thing, you know, obviously for me in the essay is that John Carpenter sort of flipped <laughs> this on its mm-hmm. head and, and made the Charles Bronson character, like if the Charles Bronson character got exactly what he wanted, what you're going to get is, you know, a fascist police state. Um, and that's fascinating to me. And, and, you know, I really wanted to talk about at least one John Carpenter movie, because when we think about sort of 70s cinema and new Hollywood, the names that pop up are Scorsese and, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and, and Altman mm-hmm. You know, nobody really talks about Carpenter, who's had an incredible influence on film and popular culture. Um, do, you, do you remember that um, interview, Kelly, that he uh, Carpenter did a few months ago where he was like, you know, uh, some the interview asked him, you know, like, what, what do you feel? How do you feel about the new Hollywood? He's like, what the heck's the new Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like, Spiel, like Spielberg, Coppola, Lucas. Like, oh, I didn't. No, you you sent me that clip. He he actually yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the interviewer asked, like, yeah. did you ever hang out with Spielberg or you know Scorsese or any of these other guys? Did you know them? You know, they're part of the new Hollywood. And he's like, no, I never hung out with them, but I did hang out with George Romero, who's a great guy, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. Because George Romero's another one who's had this pr- profound influence on American it's film, and American culture. Yes. And, I mean, and you talk about uh, Rust Belt, you know, Anomi and, and Ennui. I mean, Martin, like one of oh, one oh, three yeah, of yeah. our from Mutant's favorite films. Like, you know, that is that is the Rust Belt personified. And here's this kid who thinks he's a vampire. Like, yeah. And, and again, this is the dichotomy between the 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 guys who became huge, like Lucas and Spielberg and, mm-hmm. and Coppola and Scorsese, and the guys who toiled in the fields a little bit below them, like Toby Hooper and yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that I think that's one of the reasons why people got really like. Richard, our friend who is not here, who helped us write this book and put together some of the most amazing chapters in it, mm-hmm. uh, talks about Poltergeist. Yes, uh, and just yep. finds himself viscerally just just <laughs> angry with it, watching it at the at, you know at this point in in history after thought, well, you know, maybe I, I I encourage you if you get this book, skip just just skip Kelly and me, just go to the Poltergeist <laughs> um, because it it is an amazing a, an amazing amazing statement. But but there is a situation where the 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 aesthetics and the mentalities of Hooper and Spielberg come together and they don't quite fit. Do they? Yeah. They, you can tell which parts of that movie are Hooper and which parts of that movie are Spielberg by far. Yeah. And as Richard's chapter, sorry, go ahead. Go on, go on, go on. I was just going to say, you know, as Richard makes clear in the chapter, it was Spielberg who, who won out. Right. And there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of rumor and speculation about what actually happened on that set and who actually Mm -hmm. directed Poltergeist. Um, 
but but clearly there was a clash of ideologies right and if it if mm-hmm. it would be it's it would be interesting if if you know if it had just been hooper who had made that film without the interference of spielberg what would it have looked like and i often i often think about that um but you know we got the movie we got and the interesting thing for me was I thought Richard was going to talk about what everybody else talks about, sort of, you know, the ghosts of capitalism and and have come back to haunt suburbia. And Richard's like, that's all bullshit. Like, these are, you know, these are t- terrible parents um, <laughs> who, are, who are basically abusing their children. <laughs> and it's a fake horror movie. So, it, it, so it, it's interesting because that, that movie sort of, you know, I grew up with that movie. I saw that movie when I was you know, 10, 11 years old. Dozens of times. Yeah. So it just, it just tells me that, that some films are just too close to you to sort mm-hmm. of, to sort of untangle. Um, and oh, that's absolutely. why, that's one reason I think, you know, Richard's chapter is so brilliant. Not, not only is he sort of analyzing it from, you know, from, from, by looking back now and sort of historically, but he's not American. So he sort of can, yeah. can call out, um, all these things were that were distinctly American. The idea of the suburbs to him is completely alien. alien. Yeah. Um, so yeah. his his sort of analysis and, and um, sort of dig, digging down in it is is fascinating. And the fact that it's paired with suburbia, Penelope Spheris's film. Yep. yep. Another another guy we haven't mentioned yet who is on the Carpenter, you know, Romero Hooper side of things, but who gave a lot of the you know, big names, their starts is Roger Corman. And yeah, that's cool. You know, yep. who brought together, you know, Penelope Spheris for this film. And she had to, again, chafe against some of his more exploitative sort of impulses mm-hmm. uh, to put this put together, this film of punks in suburbia. Um, and I think she did a really good job of it. But you can see, again, where the stitching is a little bit frayed in that film, where there's stuff that's definitely done for shock value mm-hmm. that Corman, Corman was rubbing his hands together and going, oh, yeah, that's the stuff. But like, <laughs> you know, but again, like the 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 true sort of like alienation of the suburbs comes through in that film, uh, in mm-hmm. in suburbia, not in Poltergeist. Right. And I think that you know putting those films together, obviously Richard's idea was was uh, fantastic. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know again the the whole myth of New Hollywood is that you know all these filmmakers were pulling in the same direction, but they certainly weren't because some of them got material support and some of them had blockbusters. And you know after Jaws and Star Wars, you really can't talk about Spielberg and Lucas as having the the hunger that they had no just a few years previous um it, I'm sorry but it's true I mean it's it is, yeah. you know I watch THX 1138 and I see a, a guy who has something to say yep. even American graffiti yeah. as as onerous as the nostal the boomer nostalgia it burdened <laughs> us with for the next 25 years yeah, is yeah. It le- that at least has a vibe to it that you can really enjoy Spielberg's early stuff, the stuff he did for TV, like Duel, like, you mm-hmm. know, like, again, there's a hungry guy there. But yep. once they once they get big, some something changes. It's not to say that they're ha- they didn't do masterpieces after that, especially Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. But something changes, you know, and and again, like the the, the, the fact that we, we lump them all together with people who actually had a perspective and something to say. You know, again, it's not a lot of it's not George Lucas's fault, especially when it comes to like he was very, very explicit about the fact that the rebels in Star Wars were the Viet Cong. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and critics saw it at the time, too. But also we were so craving, you know, as a country, the sense that we could win something in Mm -hmm. 1977, Mm -hmm. that a lot of stuff that we talk about in the 80s section of the book comes clearly out of that impulse to feel better again. And, uh, and and he was he was quite honest. That's what he wanted to do with Star Wars. You know, he never said it was going to be anything different. He wanted people to be mm-hmm. what what was the line? He wanted people to be happier. Uh, yeah, yeah. When they walked out of the theater, and and there's a lot of that going on in the late seventies, right? Rocky's another big one made everybody sure. cheer. Uh, Superman Again, on the surface, you know, an independent Superman, film, yeah. Rocky, like yeah, and and Superman, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that always sticks out for me between Carpenter and Lucas in terms of who they go on to become in their later adult lives is is whenever whenever someone asks Carpenter about remakes and royalties and merchandising and kind of kind of the the dirty end of being a film artist, 
he, he just goes, oh, it's great. I get to buy video games and smoke weed and make music. <laughs> and like, I don't give a fuck. Remake my movies. Like, I exactly. Can't. It's so like, I hear that and I'm like, get get your fucking coin hell yeah like like i'm so i respect that and then when you when i when you hear lucas talk about it there's something that's so like I, oh, he I, sounds I, miserable yeah he's embarrassed he, he sounds like miserable he, he yeah. sounds like a miser and i can hear the kind of like calculating like oh like this character should be more like a toy silently playing in the back of his mind Oof, you know yeah yeah and it's, it's a great it's not, yeah. yeah the tragedy about lucas is that he never made any more movies like you know, THX or American Graffiti, because the guy... Oh, my God, yeah. His, mm-hmm. He's got... He had the eye, right? Richard talks yeah, about yep. this, too. He he really knew how to shoot a movie. He was extreme... He's extreme... I, I'm talking about him in the past tense, obviously, because he's just... He doesn't make movies. But oh, yeah. what an eye. I mean, he, he, you know, even if you disagree with sort of the um, tone of American Graffiti, it's a beautiful shot, yeah. beautifully shot film. Performances are incredible. So that's the real tragedy, right? Is that he never sort of, after Star Wars, he became, you know, just this monolithic presence, this businessman, this business person, mm-hmm. um, sort of cranking out new movies to create more business. You know, I, that's that's the tragedy to I, me. I, I guess I the agree. one mitigating yeah. thing you can say is that he definitely took the technical side of filmmaking up with great sincerity and again, that's been a mixed blessing, right? Because now we deal with a universe where there are no more practical effects and yeah. it is all CGI. All, yeah, technical. But, 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 you know, again, when it comes to him working with the best miniatures and best FX guys in the business back then, you know, again, we wouldn't have, you know, a lot of the amazing films that we got in the 80s that, you know, had that, you know, maybe that 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 gen- genetic material of Star Wars in it that were actually good. Oh, absolutely. Um, so you know, he he definitely he took the the sort of idea of I'm going to make a laboratory for people to do special effects. He took that seriously. So you have to give him that much credit. But yeah, like the soul went somewhere else. The, 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 <laughs> yeah. the sort of you know the the, the stuff that makes the so film many Han Solo figurines. Yeah, yeah. There's a great <laughs> story actually about. Um, John Carpenter, there's an interview with John Carpenter when he's talking about Escape from New York. And initially, mm-hmm. you know, he had more money for Escape from New York than he had ever had before. So he approached John Dykstra, who, of course, was the head of special effects for Star Wars. And he was like, love Star Wars. Effects were great. Will you do it? You know, will you do the effects for Escape from New York? John mm-hmm. Dykstra gave him this outlandish quote for how, how much it was going to cost. Carpenter was like, fuck you. <laughs> he went to he went to Roger Corman's New World yeah. special effects, mm. of whom J- uh, James Cameron was a member, yep. and James Cameron ended yep. up doing a lot of mat work and and you know the people that Cameron works with still um, ended up doing effects for uh, Escape from New York. I think that's a great John Carpenter story. I just I just love how many artists were forged under under Corman's guidance. It's just Incredible. phenomenal. The the, the, everyone from people who are still making movies for trauma to like some of the most successful wealthiest filmmakers in Hollywood all cut their teeth in, in the guy who made Carnosaurus films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's had an incredible influence. And I think, you know, he has this, you know, King of the bees and he would only make mm-hmm. a film if it cost $500, but Yep. He also had a really good eye, and um, he also made There's some... There's a passion there, definitely. Yeah, he made some pretty good films, um, you know. He, but he you're right. A lot of, I was just going to say, it's a weird analogy, but it reminds, reminds me a lot of uh, uh, Robert E. Howard, the author of Conan the Barbarian. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, like, like you yeah. know, Robert E. Howard loved to write, but he also knew he had to make money with what he was writing. So there's a lot of stuff, you know, stitched in there that, you know, is, okay, that's going to make... You know, a, a a busty babe being rescued by a totally jacked rip dude with a sword is going to make a great cover that's going to sell. Yes. Yeah, Corman has similar sensibilities. Yeah, and they're also you know they're they're also just incredibly not self conscious films. They're just fun mm-hmm. films. If you told me I could have you know only if I could only watch one studio's films, I, you know I might pick American International Pictures, which was Corman's. Sort of company oh, yeah. for a long time, just because there's so much, there's so much material there. There's it's it's, you know, there's a lot of bad films, but a lot also a lot of interesting films. 
Oh, totally. Totally. And sometimes bad, as we know, bad films are also interesting films. Yeah. And every, every bad movie too is just waiting to get its second life. Yes. It's just waiting to get picked up by something, go viral on some YouTube. Or now it's like red letter media on YouTube is going to do a review of some forgotten movie from 1974. And then, you know, the VHS tapes are going to go from a nickel to $500. A <laughs> God, I hate that. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, like, I think that that even nods towards these, these kind of like, you know, like, like, you know, capital loves to find new sites of extraction, no matter where Ooh. those are located. And even if it's irrespective to what artists and creators uh, would have would have wanted with their works initially. Oh, God. Yeah. Mike, you talked about this. Which chapter was it where you talked about sort of the counterculture and marketing and how it was inevitable? Oh, yeah. No, <clears throat> it was in the Wild in the Streets chapter, yeah. because the one thing that kind of again, going back to the sources for this stuff, the short story that it was based on. Uh, was published in Esquire, I believe. And again, like Esquire is sort of along with Playboy, maybe GQ a little later, is sort of like the totem of conspicuous mid-century consumption <laughs> for the white American male, right? Like, right. you know, the ads are, you know, high-class booze and, mm -hmm. you know, scents for men and, and sort of <laughs> like, you know, what kind of hi-fi do you need in your apartment mm -hmm. to be yep. the hipster? And in 65, they put out this short story called The Day It All Happened, Baby, which, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's pre-hippie. It's more sort of like, again, like people saw the generational sort of movement happening and younger people getting more money to spend mm -hmm. and yeah. more and and thus more social and political power. And again, this came I, I the, the Thomas Frank book, The Conquest of Cool, is a great sort of look at how the advertising industry created, you know, teenagerdom in the 50s and 60s. And just milked it dry. And there's a reason why the baby boom generation is why they are. It's not just the immense, um, you know, sort of the, the the comfort and the and the prosperity that they had because it was after World War II. It was because marketers realized that this market could be opened up to sell them stuff. You know, like mm -hmm. you can talk to people about the idea that the Beatles came into America right after the JFK assassination, and it was this huge sort of like social psychic sort of you know, balm for the country to have something yep. fresh and youthful and optimistic coming in. But again, like what did the, what did the sort of the second wave and the British invasion do? Well, it created all kinds of other venues for cheap movies. A lot of them AIP as mm -hmm. Kelly has already said, beach movies, biker movies, you know, anything that would sell to the kids. And again, like I said, the, when those kids went to college, they realized that they had been sold to their entire life. Yeah. And so they would say things like wild in the streets is going to make a lot of bread, but it's not going to tell us anything true about the movement right now, because it's the same mentality as those beach bingo movies. You know, it's like, you know, we don't know what teenagers really want. We don't know what they really are, mm -hmm. but damn it. We can sell them a ticket to a movie and maybe <laughs> some fashion that connects to the movie. And I think again, nothing's changed, right? I mean, it's the same, the same sort of fields that people tilled in when Kelly and I were teenagers, when, and nowadays when, you know, Gen oh, yeah. Z is teenagers, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're in the same machine meant to extract your surplus money that, you know, you earned doing your job or whatever. Like, you know, again, like the, these are concepts that came out of the post-war period and we're still living them 70 years later. And one of the, one of the main points of the book, I think, is that, you know, Hollywood in the seventies was still about making money. It wasn't this pure... Mm -hmm artistic yeah. experience it's always been about making money if if producers didn't think taxi driver was going to make money they would not have made allowed taxi driver to be made there was an audience for mm -hmm. those films yeah. right and so i think we we definitely take into consideration those audiences when we're talking about these movies what did audiences pay to see um Mm -hmm. and, and you know that I think that's that's an interesting it's an interesting question because it um it's not just it's not just blockbusters you know they paid to see Manson Manson didn't yep. wasn't Manson uh wasn't it nominated for was it nominated yeah it, for, it was yep. in the documentary category yeah, yeah. which which is incredible just, just watch watch that movie and tell me how that's an Oscar <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean even in the documentary category which again like it, it you know sometimes isn't even televised I'm sure it wasn't televised in the 70s when but like, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, again, like it, it, it's, they will look for site, like you were saying, sites of extraction amongst the teenage population, wherever they can find them. 
And whether that means selling shock and, and exploitation mm -hmm. or just selling them something that they can look back on again, like, you know, why, why did American graffiti make George Lucas's careers? Because yep. those kids who were in high school in 62, you know, they had disposable income. They were in their thirties. They could, you know, they could go to the, the movies and see their childhoods reflected and their adolescences reflected back at them. Mm -hmm. um, nostalgia is a huge, huge part of a lot of the stuff we talk about in the book. Um, you know, the sort of nostalgia of the time mm -hmm. uh, for an earlier, more innocent time. And it, it comes out very clearly in the movies we cover for the 80s, you know, sort of like there are all these great sort of like, you know, marginalized voices coming up and putting together these films. But like, you know, in the end, you know, people want when they go to the movies, a lot of people just want cut and dried solutions. They want things to be very, very clearly, you know, good and evil. And, mm. you know, again, like you can talk a lot about how the 70s had a lot of, you know, morally gray areas in films. But, you know, I think ultimately, even amongst the most cynical political thrillers of the time, you know, you know, people, you know, falling prey to conspiracies and everything else, like there, there was always a sense that the good guys would win. And it's sort of like, mm -hmm. well, no, I mean, you know, Nixon <laughs> got off scot-free, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah. you know, the, the, the church committee, you know, tried and failed to like rein in the intelligence community. And like, there are all these cases where, you know, the, 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 the happy ever after sort of, you know, Hollywood ending isn't what happened in reality. And, and, uh, but people keep going to buy it because as you said, Lucas, as Lucas said, makes you feel good. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, I think that is a, a good and kind of, kind of also daunting place to end this, you know, because I think we're, <laughs> we're, you know, like there, you know, 20, 30 years from now, there is another version of this book that's going to cover the 2010s, 2020s, 2030s, you know, like, like, these. and there'll be some, there'll be some great movies in there that actually said something about the time yep. oh, yeah. and they'll be paired with movies that are just completely cynical and completely, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the, the, the same dichotomy that, that sort of that same oh, yeah. sort of um, dialectic it, it happens all the time. Yep. So. <laughs> oh, ab ab absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the great strengths of this book too, is that it really, you can really use the essays and chapters in here as kind of a model and a template for film analysis. Like this is, this is how it should be done. This this stuff is just fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Ash. Yeah, thanks Ash. for having us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. I, I just wanted to thank the three of you, uh, uh, Kelly Roberts, Michael Grasso, and Richard McKenna, who couldn't be here. Uh, authors of We Are the Mutants, The Battle for Hollywood, From Rosemary's Baby to Lethal Weapon, out now from Repeater Books. Um, and all of the relevant links uh, will be down in the show notes for today's episode. So thank you. Well, I mean, one, thank you, too, for writing this book, first and foremost. <laughs> and then thanks for coming on our show. Thanks so much, Thank Ash. Gosh. All right. See everybody later. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.